We're uh, just starting today. Uh, I've been working on this series for about the last six months, and I'm pretty pumped about doing it. I got tied into an organization uh, about a year or so ago called Made to Flourish. And uh, this is a, an organization that, that is looking to sort of help us understand how to connect the work that we do with the spiritual stuff we do, seeing, seeing the work we do through kind of spiritual eyes, if you will, uh, that work is something that God sees is good for us and wants us to actually flourish in it. So I've been, I've been intrigued, intrigued by this for some time because as most of you know, I, I came to this pastor's job gig uh, after 33 years of holding a regular job in the real world. And I just had some teaching early on uh, as, a, as a Christian out here in, in the DC area that kind of helped me see work through spiritual eyes that work wasn't separate from my Christian faith, that it was actually a way to express Christian faith. So I'm hoping that this series will, will be a blessing for you guys as well. And just for fun in the, uh, what do you call it? The chat room, I've uh, thrown on there three books that I used as sort of background or references you can look at. One of them is Tim, Tim Keller's. And one of, the, one of the books is actually called Work Matters, which is kind of where I, where I grabbed the title for this, this series. So you can jot those down if, you're, if you want to. But let me just start this way with this series this way. With the number 90,000, 90,000, pretty big number. I was never a math guy at school. I, I, I was never even close to figuring out, for example, how many jelly beans were in the jar on the counter. I would guess 200 and there turned out to be 2000. So I was not even close, but I know this 90,000 is a pretty big number. And uh, I've done some research on that for you. Um, if you were to get up out of your chair or couch, or if you're in a black screen right now, or you're still laying in bed or whatever, if you were to get up and take 90,000 steps on average, you and I would have walked 45 miles. If you were to get in your car, and drive 90,000 miles without stopping because you've got a Tesla with a, nine, with a million mile battery, you would have driven around the earth three and a half times. And I bring this number up because 90,000 is the average number of hours you and I are going to spend at work in our lifetime. Now that's a lot of hours. And some studies have been done on this too, and I'll share you uh, some information on that. The studies are based on this. They're based on the average lifespan being 72 years. Now, I know that you and I probably have more than 72 years of life uh, in us, but it's just, according to the study, you don't. So that's kind of a bit of a bummer way to start the series, right? But if you live 72 years, you will have lived a total of 622,000 hours. That sounds really good, right? Only problem is that you will have spent probably a huge chunk of that time drooling on your pillow in an unconscious state. So you're going to be asleep about 228,000 hours. So if you take the time that we're unconscious out of the equation, that leaves you 394,000 hours of awake time in this life. 394,000 hours to do anything and everything we're ever going to do in our lifetime. That's, that's all we get, folks. And how much of it did we spend at work? 90,000. That's about 22% of our awake time, nearly one-fourth of your awake time on earth. Now, you think of that number, 90,000 out of 394,000, doesn't seem that bad. It seems like we got a lot of time left to do stuff. 
but if we keep putting this number in perspective, how much time do we really get to spend doing the things we really enjoy based on the surveys, right? How much time does the average person spend laughing in life, for example? Well, average 3,600 hours, not all that much. How much time do we spend exercising or taking care of ourselves physically? On average, 4,320. That's not all that much either. Of course, anybody who does CrossFit will say, oh, I spend way more time in the gym than that. And the rest of us are like, sure, we know that. You tell us every chance you get, right? Hey, what about eating? We all love a good meal. How much time eating? 32,100 hours eating. Big jump, lots of hours. How about sex? Drum roll, all the guys are thinking, please let it be a lot of hours, right? Average number, 2,800. I don't know if that's too much or too little. It's just what the survey says. How about this? Quality time with family and friends. A lot of us would say, well, that's probably the most important thing we do with our life. And a lot of people wouldn't argue with that. We'd all say that, you know, being a good friend or parent or spouse is some of the most important roles that we play. So how much time do we spend with those people? On average, 42,300 hours. That one kind of stings a little bit. <laughs> because despite all the time we spend doing stuff we enjoy, at the end of it all, when they dress us up in a suit or a dress or tie or whatever and lower us into the grave or ship us into the crematorium, right? All those hours kind of pale in comparison to the number of hours we spend at work. We're gonna spend twice as much time at work as we do hanging out with our friends, wives, families, husbands, that kind of, that, that, so let that sink in, 90,000 hours of work. So think about what you do for a living right now, because it's Sunday and Monday's coming up soon and the alarm's gonna go off and off you'll go. Maybe during COVID, it's just you get up and go downstairs in your PJs to your computer rather than head to the office. But whatever it is you're doing and whatever it is you're clocking into, that's basically one fourth of your life in a nutshell. It's by far the lion's share of anything you'll do with your time and your waking hours. So what does that one fourth of your life look like for you? Is it 90,000 hours staring at Excel spreadsheets? Uh, going door to door, selling coffee? 90,000 hours of expense reports and budget to actuals, 90,000 hours of avoiding people you're not that fond of. What does it look like for you? Since it takes up so much of your time, do you enjoy it? Is it life-giving or is it life-sucking? Do you look forward to or do you dread the one-fourth of your waking life? It's kind of sobering to think about it. But we got to start the series here and we probably needed a little bit of a slap in the face with the reality that by the end of our lives, you and I will have given one fourth of it to work, to a company, to a boss, to a tech startup, to a commute, you name it. And every one of those hours had better be an investment, right? I mean, we should see a return on the investment. If not, it's just wasted time. So what do we envision being the return on investment of one fourth of our lives? Well, some people might answer that and say, well, I, I work, I work to play. I work for the weekend. I work to be able to afford and enjoy my life outside of work. And I, I get that, but is that the wisest investment of time? Like you grind away 40, 45, 50 hours or even more of work during the week, 
just so you can enjoy a few hours of time on the weekend? Doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, if we're talking money instead of hours, you'd be in the red. Some people say, well, I just work to uh, survive. I get that too. Uh, to varying degrees, we, we all are, right? But can that really be it? You work one fourth of your life to ensure that you just stay fed and breathing on the planet. Okay, is that the best return on investment we can expect? And then maybe some of you guys on the Zoom call here, uh, we might not say it out loud, but if we were being honest, we'd say, well, I, I work uh, to make a name for myself. I work to be important. I work to be valuable. I work to be remembered. I'm working to build a legacy. I hear you, but you got to know, right, that there's a chance that your return on investment is going to be a massive letdown. Because the truth is that unless you're the next Abraham Lincoln or something, your name is going to be forgotten with time. I mean, what's the name of your great, 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 great grandfather, right? Yeah, you don't know. The chances are infinitesimal that they're going to chisel your image into marble somewhere so you can be remembered forever. And even if they do, what's going to happen? A couple hundred years later, cancel culturers are going to find something you believe in that they don't and spray paint profanity on it and pull it down, right? So is it really worth a quarter of our lives just to make people around us sort of jealous of our temporary success? There's got to be something more, don't you think? I mean, got to be something more to the 90,000 hours we spend at work. Got to be some purpose better than, greater than that, some goal that's more than just a paycheck or mere survival or feeling of, feeling of, feel like you're feeling like you're important. I don't know about you, but gosh, I hope there is. Because if, if we're just doomed to invest a quarter of our lives into some vacuum we call the career, it's a bitter pill. And we just, should just go swallow it and go home and, and just do the best we can and, and get up tomorrow morning and go to work. But I think you're smart enough because you're in church, right? That, that that's not all there is to work. And the good news for us is that God says there's more to work than simply that. There's more, it's way more important than that. And I think Jesus hopes to bring some hope into this quarter of our lives that is spent doing a job. So that's what we're going to talk about in this series. The series is about how do we take that one quarter of our lives that we are awake and make it worth it. And today is just an introduction to the series. All I want to do today is drive home the truth that according to, according to God, work does matter. Like your work matters. Not just the work of pastors, not just the work of doctors, not just the work of nonprofits. That work matters too, but so does yours. Why? Because according to God, work in general, the act of working matters. It's important to him and he actually created us to do it. And we see this truth in the first couple of chapters in the Bible where we find the story of the origin of everything. The first sentence of the Bible, which thank you, Amy, for reading the whole chapter, because I think it drives on the point of this that I'm going to make here. In Genesis 1-1, we have this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you read on, as Amy did, you find out he created everything. So right there, smack in the beginning, first sentence, God got to work. It's the very first thing he does. He gets to work. He gets his hands dirty. He creates something out of nothing. He spends the first six days of existence as we know it, working. On the sixth day, he creates his greatest and finest work, humanity. That's you, you and me, us. And the Bible tells us in verse 27 of that first chapter, God created mankind in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. So humanity, you and me, created in the image of God. And that means you and I are, were created and are supposed to reflect the character and nature of God to everything and everyone else that he's created. So here's what we need to pay attention to today, I think. We gotta remember that when we hear that verse, we really are only 27 verses into the big, fat, thick book we call the Bible. And we're told that we are to reflect the character and nature of God to the rest of creation. Now, God does a ton of stuff, which you're going to see if we continue to read scripture. So there's lots of ways that we can reflect the character and nature of God to the world. But when it comes to the first 27 verses of the Bible, we've only still seen God do one thing so far, and that's work which means, among other things, that you and I were created in the image of a working God, a God at work. So what does the fact that God works and that he is at work mean for us in terms of our relationship with him? Well, I think it's really great news. It means that really whatever picture we have of God, uh, like in a white bathrobe someplace on a throne in a distant place far away, and he really only listens to us if we beg for it, and he never really moves off the throne. He's just being fed clusters of grapes by baby flying angels or something. I mean, I don't know, whatever your picture is of God, my guess is it's probably a poor image because that doesn't seem to be how God's operating. Instead, beginning on day one and continuing through today in 2020, we're told in our Bible of a God who is at work. He's not distant, nor is he uninvolved. He gets his hands dirty. He's in the mess with us at work in our lives. He's in the act of creating something out of the nothing parts of us. Not only has God at work, but he seems to love his work. He delights in it. If you were to go read Genesis 1 and 2 on your own, it's a good read. You're not going to discover a God who is up there moaning and groaning about having to work. Man, it's only two o'clock. I've got to spend three more hours making earth. I hate this. I mean, you don't see that. Instead, you see a God who gets to work for the sheer joy of it. And not only is he at work, but he loves his work. He creates and he gets to work for the sheer joy of it. I saw this verse in Zephaniah when I was trolling around doing this series, and it's out of Zephaniah 3, Old Testament. He says, the Lord your God is with you, not, wait, not far away. He's with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you, and his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that anytime I screw up, he's never going, oh man, Dwayne messed up again. He's such a bum. I'm sorry I made him. He doesn't do that. In his love, he doesn't rebuke me or you. Instead, in his love, what does he do? He gets to work. And he delights in his ability to save us from ourselves. God doesn't work with us. He's at work in our lives. And he loves his job. And it's in that kind of image that you and I were created created in an image of a working God who loves his job. That's why in Genesis 1, we learn that God actually blesses humanity with work. It sounds crazy, right? But the very first gift, yep, very first gift that God gives us, other than the ability to breathe, is the ability to join him in the kind of work that he does. We take a look at verse 28, if you've got your Bibles. It says, God blessed them, humanity, man and woman, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living critter that moves on the earth. God blesses them. That is, he's gifting them something. He's giving them something. And the gift he gives them was to go be fruitful and increase. Go create people like I created people. Make families, make societies, make communities, make civilizations, just like I created you. Fill the earth with people. Subdue the earth, meaning this earth is your resource. I want you to manage it like I would. Use it to create cities and structures and culture and art. Rule over the animals, which is an invitation to join God in caring for and managing everything God's made. So we just learned an interesting fact, I think, but we might miss it. We learned that God, according to Genesis, created an unfinished world. It's not done yet. And instead of finishing it himself, which he could have done, he gives us the gift of joining him in moving this creation project forward. In other words, at the very beginning, God says, I want you to join me in making something great at this place. We're off to a good start. I did great getting it going, but the project is unfinished. I want you to finish it with me. Move forward with me. Go make societies, become leaders and followers and students and teachers. Go become everything from linguists to counselors to artists. Go make civilizations. Go become architects and city managers and plumbers and accountants. He says, we're to use this place that he's created as a resource. Use it to feed yourself. Use it to build your bridges. Use it to invent everything from the wheel to the printing press to the next great app for the smartphone. Go to town. Join me in making something great of this place. Now, quick timeout. Because of what we just heard, we need to get this. Anytime I use the word work in this whole series, I am not just referencing the responsibility for work that earns you a paycheck. Maybe the earning a paycheck is what eats up 90,000 hours of your life, but that's not the only work we do here, right? Because work, according to God, is anything that working with God moves the creation project that God got started forward. Anything, anything that works to make something great of this place. So this series is not a total wash for you if you are currently not bringing a paycheck home. If you are a student, for example, God would say that you are at work. You are learning how to harness and subdue this place. You are learning how to take everything from history to biology, from math to music, you name it, and make it work for you so you can make something great of this place. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you are at work and you got your hands full, right? If you're a dad and you've ever taken care of the kids for a couple of days so your wife can go off with friends or to a retreat, you know how hard that job is, right? You might think you're the boss because you're dad, but you know your kids are, right? I mean, if your boss treated you like your kids do, demanding goldfish or something to drink every 10 minutes and wanting you to wipe them, you'd quit that job, right? It's a tough gig. So for the rest of us of the series, when I say work, I'm not referencing just the 90,000 hours earning a paycheck. I'm referencing any work that moves the creation project with God forward. That includes your parenting, that's your midnight phone call friendships, that's your side hobby of photography or music making or whatever. So time back in. What did we just learn in Genesis? We learned the ideal. We learned God's grand vision for the gift of work and what it could look like. And it means this, no, you are not just the FedEx delivery man. You are helping make something great of this place. You are providing businesses and homes with the tools they need to be successful. The way our world works in this day and age, things would literally grind to a halt without you. And no, you're not just the CPA. You're making something great of this place. 
You're giving people who suck at money a chance to have financial peace and security. And no, you're not just a mom. You're making something great of this place. You're having and training those little people up and filling the earth with them. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn God's grand vision for work. It's a gift to us, and we should love it like he loves his work. Now, you and I know at the same time that the reality we find in work today is very far removed from God's grand vision for work. Like it's really cool to think for a few minutes in church, oh, I'm the delivery man, I'm the CPA, I'm the mom, but in God's eyes, I'm doing the honorable work of moving the creation project forward. Cool to think about that. But listen, work, the reality of it is that it's really hard. It's really hard for a whole slew of reasons. First of all, work no longer comes naturally. You literally have to work at it. You have to earn a degree. You got to go to trade school. You got a job hunt, which I think is the worst job ever. Resume, 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 interview, interview, interview. None of it pays a dime, right? If you do get a job, you've got on-site training, you got ongoing training, you got recertifications. There's always somebody who's threatening to outshine you, risking your job security. Work is hard. After a while, it's easy to start distorting work. For some of us, work can feel totally fruitless, totally pointless. How many people are there that feel that what they do for a job in the long run doesn't really matter? And there are people who spend every hour at work wishing they could be at home. And there are people who spend every hour at home dreading going back to work. Things could be bad there. I could be fired. I could be demoted. I could be transferred. I could be put out the pasture. And guess what? If any of those things happen, it really wouldn't affect the world one bit. Work can feel fruitless or pointless. For others of us, work can be all-consuming. That's for those of us who go, well, what I do, what I do is super important. It's actually the most important thing I do. It's more important than family and friends and stable relationships. It's more important than the emotional, physical, spiritual health. Why? Because I'm making a name for myself here. I'm making money for myself. I'm climbing the ladder here, and I'm going to do it fast. So yeah, I will sacrifice myself on this altar. I will make my job my God. Then for some of us, maybe, work can become our entire identities. I mean, think of it. What's the second question we ask people? On the first question, you know it is. Hey, what's your name? Who are you? What's your second question? Is it a, hey, what's your family like? Is it, what'd you spend your time on a vacation? What are your hobbies? What do you like to eat? No, it's this. What do you do for a living? It's the second question. Not about everything else. Listen, you were born a woman, okay? You were born an individual. But read your obit at the end. You'll die a doctor or a teacher. I was born a man. But my guess is my obit's going to say I'm a, I was a CIA person and I died, and I died as a pastor, right? It, be, it can become your entire identity. This is why sometimes our success or failure at work, we can interpret as success or failure of us as people, of our character. This is why the cutbacks and the layoffs and the loss of jobs during COVID-19 just about killed people. This is why we're embarrassed to tell people we're in between jobs. This is why when we finally reach the dream of retirement, a lot of people spend about one week of euphoria and then immediately are bored, feel useless, and totally unimportant. Because somewhere along the path, our jobs became our identity. That's the tough reality of work. And the question is simply this, what, what the heck happened? 
what happened to the grand vision of the gift of work that God blessed us with? Where did we go so terribly wrong? And the answer to that riddle is also found in Genesis, in chapter three, which I didn't make Amy read, right? The very first couple, Adam and Eve, made a decision. It's a decision we make every day, and we can't blame them. But they made a decision that affected everybody else in humanity down the, down the stream of history. They just decided to be their own gods, right? I want to decide for myself what's good and what's not. I want to decide for myself what's, uh, what I can and can't do. Now, Christian folks call that moment of Adam and Eve uh, decision the fall, the fall of man. And the result is that this thing called sin enters into our world. Sin is our inability to hit the bullseye anymore. It's, it's what sin does. It makes us unable to live completely within God's grand vision for life, including God's grand vision for work. On top of that, in Genesis 3, work specifically takes a huge hit. In Genesis 3, as sin enters the world, two things that God blessed humans with, two things God gave us as gifts, which is making babies and going to work, these two gifts are now under a curse. First one's childbirth, right? God says, listen, you're still going to join me in making something great of this place. You're still going to join me in making people. But from here on, it ain't going to be fun. It's going to hurt, and it's going to be filled with, uh, riddled with complications. It's going to become the kind of thing that when it's the only thing in the world that you want, you might not be able to have it. It's going to hurt now. It's under a curse. And the second thing that's under a curse is work. God looks at Adam and says this, and this marks a dramatic shift in how things were before the decision they made. Earth before cooperated, but now look what happens. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So all of a sudden, work goes from being fun and, and happy and really productive. It's going to be hard now. Goes on in verse 18. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. It didn't before. No weeds. Didn't, didn't have to hoe things out of them. Didn't, didn't have to do weed killer. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. It's going to be obstacle after obstacle. You might get some good results eventually, but no longer is it going to be a piece of cake. And uh, Sesman tells him in verse 18 and 19, you're going to eat the plants of the field, but it ain't going to be easy. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, right? In other words, from now on, until the day we die, you and I are going to have to work like dogs to earn our living. We're going to have to earn the ability to live. You got to, you got to eat to live, and you got to work to eat. It's going to lead to constant stress, exhaustion, because work is now under a curse. Now, it's important to distinguish that work itself is not a curse. Work is still a gift. Work is still a blessing. Work is not a curse any more than having babies is a curse. But work, like having babies, is now under a curse. The good gift of work is now riddled with hardship and obstacles and difficulties. And if we're not careful, work can always trend toward completely defining our value. So let me just break down what we, what we learned so far. Because what we've learned so far is the foundation for this series. We learned, according to God, the work matters. And it matters to him because his grand vision for work is that we are joining him in making something great of this place. You and I are supposed to have our eyes set on that target. At the same time, we're also supposed to be aware of the reality that work is under a curse, which means that for us, 
it should not surprise us that work is hard. Work is difficult. It should not surprise us that work threatens to own us and completely define our worth. And this one's a kick in the pants, but it should not surprise us to discover that there is literally no perfect job out there. It does not exist. I tell people all the time who come up to me, a lot of times from my, my, my previous, uh, previous life, they say, dude, I'm so jealous of your job. It's got to be so rewarding and fulfilling. After all, you're doing the Lord's work and you got the perfect job and you bite your tongue because you want to tell them, what, 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 what perfect job? Don't get me wrong. I love this job. I love this gig. I love you. I love being here with you and doing this today. But it ain't no perfect job. It's exhausting physically, emotionally, spiritually. That stuff is real. It's the job as a constant, never-ending, weekly deadline, right? The pressure is ongoing. On top of that, my job never has a completed project. Because when you work at a church, you're dealing with love and loving and working with people who are broken, just like I am. And broken people are never completely fixed, including myself. I can't tell you the times I've come home and from church or whatever, and I've had the same conversation. Maybe you've had it about, about your job. I've told Jackie, you know, maybe I should just go do something else. That Walmart greeter job sounds pretty darn good right now, right? Clock in at nine, clock out at five, go home and not to think about anything all the time. No, no deadlines, right? Just clock in, clock out, and go home. Sounds like their perfect job. Of course, talk to someone who's a Walmart greeter and you're gonna find out that it ain't the perfect job. There's not a perfect job out there, right? Listen, I don't tell you this, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to come across as a martyr or earn pity. I'm just saying, look, whatever job we have, it's me too. We're all experiencing this. We all know the grand vision for work, but the reality of, of the curse is real. The struggle is real, and no one, including pastors, are exempt from it. And that means over the course of this series, I am not going to be talking down to you guys. I'm not going to be preaching at you. I'm not going to be saying, well, here's how you normal people with normal jobs can work perfectly uh, like pastors do. No, everybody's in this thing, and I'm in it with you. Because work is a gift, but it's under a, a curse, even if it's Lord's work, right? So what do we do about this one-fourth of our lives that we spend working? What do we do with this struggle between work matters, but it's under a curse? So two things off the bat that we should not do. One, don't spend your life trying to find the perfect job because it doesn't exist. I see some folks in the younger generation that work at a job two or three years and then bounce off. If you're a manager of, an, of a firm or whatever, you've noticed the, the, the people that tend to flip job, 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 job. Uh, unlike when I was getting a job, I was happy to have one. So I was happy to be there until I died, right? But the new generation is like always finding the new thing. And guess what? They're going to search and search and search and search. And guess what? There is no perfect job because work is under a curse. And I think the, all, the other thing I would say is the solution is not to try to work drastically less than 90 hours. I think in the United States, we tend to have a, a low view of work. We, look, we tend to look at work as a necessary evil. It's something I've got to do to get paid so I can go enjoy my real life, which is anything that isn't at work. On top of that, I think the church in general has a pretty low view of work too. And how do I know? Well, we hardly ever talk about it. This is the first series we've ever done here at The Surge on the subject of work. We'll tell you how to deal with addictions. We'll talk about forgiveness. We'll talk about grace. We'll talk about how to treat people a bit better, how to deal with anxiety. Talk about all the 
spiritual step in your life. We love digging into God's word, figure out how to apply it practically. But as we've done that, we've tended to ignore that one fourth of our waking hours we spend working. We don't talk about what it looks like, what it means to be an awesome regional manager, manager or an intern or a student or a mom or an owner or a person waiting tables. And that's a shame because God has a high view of work. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus talks more about shepherding and farming and fishing and work in the financial sector than just about anything else. He speaks in terms of his illustrations through the language of people working because he knows it takes up a huge amount of our lives. And think about Jesus. He was a carpenter 10 times longer than he was a Messiah in full-time ministry. And I don't think he would say that that was a waste of his time. According to God, work is not a necessary evil. It is a necessary good. Come join me, he says, in the work to make something great of this place. You know, I, I got a feeling that if we ever find in an archaeological dig a warehouse full of the furniture that Jesus made, do you think it'd be quality stuff? I do. So what do we do? Are we supposed to just resign ourselves to work being all-consuming and selfish or being useless and pointless? I don't think so. Call me crazy, but I really do think we can weather the curse of work while still aiming at God's great vision for it. How do we do this? Well, today is a cliffhanger because I'm not going to answer that today. <laughs> I'm just laying the foundation. But I want to let you know that there's not a single person listening, including me, who just flits through, flits through life working and just loves it all the time. We all struggle with keeping it God's grand vision. And it's always going to be a struggle. There's always going to be a dilemma here, I think. It's, it's hard. It's challenging. It can be frustrating. And it's true for everybody. But we also just learned that it work, that work matters. It matters to God. It matters for us. It's important. So through the rest of the series, we're going to be looking at, at what uh, you do for work matters, looking at the fact that, that how you act at work matters. And we're even going to look at who you are without work really matters too. We'll jump into these things and see what God has to say about them. And I believe if we dig into it, God's going to give us a solid foundation for work so you and I can invest the one-fourth of our lives into it and see a good return. So here's our application. Here's what you can do uh, today. It's a simple ask, even though it's kind of a big one. It's be here every week. I know pastors supposed to say that, right? I'm not the guy that counts butts in seats, all right? I'm not the guy who whines about having two fewer people this week than we had last week. I'm, I'm not asking you to be here every week so I can make myself feel better. Here's why I'm encouraging you. It's simple math. If you come back every week of this series, you're investing three more hours of your time just to see if God might influence the 90,000 hours that we call work. It's just simple math. Unless you become a billionaire, that's how much you're going to work in your lifetime. So the way I see it, you've got two options. The first option is this. Do your own thing. Good luck out there on your own trying to figure it out. And you'll probably be miserable for that one-fourth of your life. Or maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe the next leadership podcast or TED Talk will have the miracle solution for you. That's one option. The other option, just spend three hours with us over the next three weeks. You know, God does not just care that you go to heaven when you die. He doesn't just care about you cussing less and drinking less, right? God cares about all of your life, even the minutiae. And if that's true, then he cares about the one-fourth of your life you call work. So I'm interested in seeing whether God has anything to say, if God can breathe life into that one-fourth of our life. 
we call work. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for this, these chapters. In